This week on the show, we have FreeBSD on power, power to the people. Dragonfly BSD's 5.8 release we're covering. We have the story of unifying FreeNAS and TrueNAS. The OpenBSD versus Prometheus and Go blog post we're covering, as well as the GCC 4.2.1 removal from FreeBSD base, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 341, the U Nazification, recorded for and on the 11th of March 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. And we're finally live with a little bit of pre recording for uh, upcoming things that didn't happen, but we're still promising you to give you an episode every week. So here we are. Uh, a guaranteed uh, corona-free podcast. That's all we want to mention about this thing at the moment. And we should get right into our headlines this week, starting with FreeBSD on power. Yes. Uh, so this is an article over on the FreeBSD Foundation's blog called Power to the People, Making FreeBSD a First-Class Citizen on Power, the IBM architecture. It says, Committer's Dedication, a Foundation Grant, and the Raptor Computing System Support accelerates FreeBSD on Power 9. The power and promise of all open source software is freedom. Another way to express freedom is choice. Uh, that's choice of platform, choice of deployment models, stacks, configurations, etc. The FreeBSD Foundation is dedicated to supporting and promoting the FreeBSD project and community worldwide. But that, uh, what does this actually mean? Uh, you may wonder. The truth is it means many different things, but in all cases, the Foundation acts to expand the freedom of choice so that the FreeBSD users have the power to serve their varied computing needs. So this blog tells the story of one specific way the Foundation helped a member of the community provide greater hardware choice to all FreeBSD users. So uh, Piotr Kubaj is a FreeBSD ports committer based in Poland, whose main field of interest is improving the ports, which is third-party software, uh, on PowerPC64, uh, which is a CPU architecture. In a paper submitted to Asia BSDCon for 2019, Piotr explains his motivations. My goal is to make the PowerPC platform equal to the AMD64 platform in terms of software support. This includes having the usual desktop class software like web browsers and desktop environments, It also providing uh, server class software like database servers and web servers and so on. Uh, Piotr began working with Power Systems in the fall of 2018 as a contributor, submitting hundreds of patches uh, supporting development efforts that have a big impact on the project, uh, like the work of Piotr is doing, is an important part of what the Foundation does as his mission. So in April of 2019, around the time he received uh, a Power9 system from the Foundation, Piotr's development status was elevated to that of committer, allowing him to directly commit his patches. Piotr works on two different Power9 machines. The first is a remote server provided by Raptor Computing Systems, uh, and then the second is a local workstation uh, that he got funded by the Foundation. He uses both of these systems so he can work in parallel using both the stable and current branches of FreeBSD because some ports need direct local uh, access during testing. Uh, you know, it's really hard to test a web browser on a remote computer. <laughs> and the fact that at that time, PowerPC64 on stable was using the previous ELF format, but current is running the new ELF format. And so Piotr maintains the old ELF v1 environment for concurrently testing uh, applications against both of those. Um, but when looking at why 
uh, there's this work on Power9. Uh, the biggest part is openness. Power9 has a 100% open, open source firmware stack, as opposed to most uh, AMD64 hardware, both Intel and AMD, which has a very proprietary firmware stack. Then it links to an article that explains more about that. It's an interesting irony that emerges that while chip makers like Intel justified the inclusion of proprietary firmware for security reasons, those systems' uh, privileged access to your machine is the main source of security issues currently. Hmm. <laughs> Another aspect of open firmware relates to the BMC, or the Baseboard Management Controller. This is the out-of-band management tools you use to reboot a server or access it when it's having problems, uh, you know, like ILO for HP or DRAC for Dell or just the Super Doctor, I think it's called, for Supermicro, but most people are familiar with BMC or IPMI. Uh, well, these Raptor systems use OpenBMC uh, in particular um, because it provides cloud-scale deployment stuff, but in an open-source BMC. Uh, reproducing uh, debug-fix deployment cycles, uh, you know, when an issue arises with a cloud-scale deployment, it's difficult to reproduce the same issue in a controlled lab environment. This makes it tough to find and fix the problem, whereas having an open BMC stack makes it easier to remote into that machine. Uh, affordability, right? With Power9, uh, both servers and workstations are now increasingly affordable. You know, some of the previous Power systems were very specialized. Uh, but with Power9, you can actually get uh, an entry-level rack-mounted or tower-configured server for less than $3,000, whereas before, uh, they were usually quite out of reach. The blog goes into some of the technical challenges, like getting it working with LLVM, the change from um, the ELF format V1 to V2, getting KDE and all of its stuff working, and so on. And they also talk about what's next. Uh, once the switch to LLVM is complete, then the to-do list includes working on GPU acceleration, like many desktop ports currently need that. And it's nice, you know, when your website, browser, whatever, uh, doesn't have stuttering or tearing, you know, you want to be able to watch videos smoothly in your browser and so on. Then looking at getting uh, some of the popular frameworks working like Rust and Node, because those are required to build Firefox and everybody wants that. Uh, and then even looking at things like porting Chromium and, and so on over so that the Power9 experience will be you know, on par with x86. Yeah, that will allow people to uh, experiment with it or even switch completely over if they so desire because they have their familiar tool set available. So yeah, uh, thanks to the foundation and of course Piotr for making uh, that work and uh, porting all that. And I guess users and testers are very welcome. So check it out. If you have access to these systems, there's probably um, a way to get the source and compile it and run it. Okay, next up is uh, last week came out uh, Dragonfly uh, 5.8. So this is uh, us covering the release notes here. And they say that uh, Dragonfly version 5.8 brings new decent utility for building your own binary deports packages, plus significant support work to speed up that build, up to and including the entire collection. Additional progress has been made on GPU and signal support. Uh, they detail all the commits between the 5.6 and 5.8 branches in associated commit message. But here, the specific items they want to mention as big ticket ones are that, uh, as mentioned, the decent uh, has been written and uh, added to base, uh, making it more convenient for users to build their own binary repos for D ports. 
uh, desynth is used to build some of its uh, or all of the Dports collection, over 25,000 third-party packages. So that's a lot already. And it's also working as an informal performance measure with many of the changes in the release to speed up Dragonfly when building multiple dependent packages. This is probably the same as uh, Putria for FreeBSD. Like it's really, you know, busting the systems to their limits. Uh, then the next item they have is that many ports these days seem to assume a greater degree of signal safety for libc functions or the function uh, particularly for the malloc call and they have implemented a low overhead signal masking feature that now allows them to make malloc and other rated functions signal safe okay as well as a ton of bug fixes, stability work and usability work has gone into this release. Many niggling little annoyances such as Chrome or Chromium stuttering when system memory is low, uh, those have been fixed. Uh, DRM GPU support continues to improve slowly but steadily. Okay, also good to hear. And they have significantly improved paging algorithms, which reduces or even eliminates the UI or browser glitches in low memory situations. Cool, that's yeah, I saw they have a, uh, more details about how the work they'd done on SMP had meant that the um, page selection algorithm was pessimized a bit and often would pick the wrong pages. Uh, and with work for that, it caused the system to perform much better under low memory situations, which is, you know, if you're running a web browser, you're automatically in a low memory situation. <laughs> <laughs> any any browser these days <laughs> just a few taps here and there yeah <laughs> uh, they also mentioned updates to the graphic stack i see the generic drm code has been updated to linux 4.9 with a few backports from 4.12 to improve wayland support the i915 driver has been updated to 4.8.17 with a few backported changes from 5.4 to support newer skylake coffee lake ambi lake or amber lake whiskey lake and Comet Lake GPU models. Uh, and the Radeon driver has been updated to 4.9, and some issues with the DMAP uh, have been improved. Yeah, there's a bunch of uh, things listed in the release notes. Um, too many to list, but if you want to look at the individual items, we have them linked from our show notes. Yeah, I see they have a fixed a memory corruption bug with the audio on the ThinkPad L480. Uh, so that's very modern hardware. Um, and they pulled in the IWM um, wireless driver from FreeBSD, giving them support for the Intel 9000 and 9260 drivers. And yes, of course, the release notes also mentioned how to upgrade uh, from your current system, which means a couple of Git commands to uh, fetch the branch and check it out, pulling the rest down and then making a big build world, build kernel uh, dance, let the system work on itself for a while. Yep, and I also see uh, they're currently using GCC 8, um, but they still have GCC 4 um, as a fallback. It's installed, but not used, but it's there in case something breaks, I guess. <laughs> Mm, yeah, as a fallback browser, uh, not browser, compiler. Yeah, all right. So then uh, if if you're using Dragonfly BSD and have uh, updated to that or want to share your experiences, we're always uh, looking for Dragonfly BSD stories. Uh, so send those to feedback at bsdnow.tv so that other people could uh, share with that experience and see, hey, this is an interesting release or an interesting distribution to check out. Uh, and then last night, we also had the second meeting of the Hamilton slash Southern Ontario BSD user group. We met at the same restaurant as last time. It's uh, working out well so far. We're 
considering looking at other spaces for if we actually get more to a presentation style. Uh, but right now, we're mostly just having fun sitting around and talking. So yes, the meeting went very well. Uh, I think we had seven people this time. I know the group from Buffalo couldn't make it over this time, but it had a good turnout. And uh, we had a bunch of interesting discussions. Uh, we're uh, the kind of co-host. John is working on some improvements, uh, picking up a ball I dropped a while ago, which was some improvements to the installer so that at the end of running a FreeBSD install, you would get some options to install common desktop stuff. So it's like, you know, what kind of graphics card do you have? And it will set up the right driver. And then it's asks, uh, you know, which of these desktop environments would you like? And then, you know, do you want Firefox and Thunderbird or do you want these other programs? Uh, and it will install all those so that in a, you know, a login manager and so on, so that when you actually boot the system for the first time, it might actually resemble uh, something someone switching from Linux might actually understand. Cool. Uh, and then we talked about lots of other things, including just uh, I brought a random collection of stickers that I've accumulated <laughs> uh, and, and people were decorating their laptops and we had a whole discussion about which way up do you put the stickers on your laptop. Oh, yes, because you have the lid is open versus closed. Yeah, mm. it's like mostly I think you want them so the right way up when the lid is open. It might look silly when you're looking at your own laptop, but the stickers are not just for you, right? <laughs> then we also just uh, went around the room and uh, each of us talked a bit about how we first got into computers uh, and then how we got into BSD. And uh, not many of the stories were the same at all. So it was very interesting to to see the different stories. Yeah. Uh, did people also have questions or like, was it more beginner-like or more like advanced or? Um, it was quite a mix, uh, a lot beginner-like, but that's very useful. One of the things we talked about was, you know, some of the, uh, one of them had some questions about upgrading a system from a release to current and talked about some of the issues they ran into, like just not knowing what the right URL is to get the source code. Like when you do the SVN checkout to update your copy of user source, what's the right URL to get it from? And, yeah. you know, apparently that's not spelled out in the handbook on the section on up building the kernel. <laughs> we should maybe check that and stuff like that. But it led to a whole discussion about it can be awfully difficult for us as the uh, developers to see some of these problems that new users have just because we intrinsically know a bunch of things. Whereas actually watching someone who's doing it for the first time can expose a lot of the rough spots that we just don't even notice. Like I've done BSD install so many times that unless someone changes something again, I can do it with my eyes closed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which makes it really hard for me to see where the problems are. <laughs> yeah, right. And for us, it's, uh, we're, we're kind of colorblind to our own system. So beginners are good to have. This led to a slight digression about how, you know, the best way to torture someone is to strap them down and make them watch someone who's not very adept at computers try to do stuff and like not know about keyboard shortcuts and stuff for <laughs> or how to exit VI. <laughs> John told a story about his dad working on a spread, uh, had two different spreadsheets and was like, look at, switch the window to the first one, look at a cell, read the number, 
switch to the second one, find the right cell, and then type the number in again. Uh, and then John showed him copy and paste. <laughs> and he was like, wow, that's so much better. Yeah, see? <laughs> it has its yeah. uses, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and how much of that stuff is just non-obvious and so on. Yeah, if you're not, like, uh, grew up with this thing or not doing this every day, it's like, ooh. And for many people, it's such an improvement in uh, a daily work thing that they do every day and they just don't know how to do it efficiently. Yeah, that's... Uh, and even that happens to me. I, I recently found a video where they explained a couple of Vim shortcuts. And I'm like, oh, you can do that? That's so much useful. I would use this every day. And yeah, I have to, you know, remember the shortcuts now, but this is cool. How did I live without that? At the next meeting, I might revive... I have a, an old flowchart I had started. I figured the best way to rebuild the installer from scratch, like I know Ed's been talking about rewriting it in Lua, which I think is a good idea. But the first thing we really need to do is come up with the flowchart of what information we need to get from the user and how can we ask the user fewer questions they might not know the answer to and try to default things, but also how to, you know, there's some, I guess, power uh, in the installer that, I feel is missing. You know, lots of people want to, I have this new laptop. I want to, you know, shrink the Windows partition, or I've already done that in Windows or whatever, but I want to install FreeBSD with ZFS, but only to this partition, not have it take over the whole hard drive. Mm -hmm. And today that's not really something that's easy to do. Yeah, exactly. When you're switching, that's an issue you want to tackle and make it easy. I've written a terrible post on the wiki about how to do it, but it's it, it should just be an extra picking one extra thing out of the <laughs> the options yeah the menus or whatever um and get that working okay yeah seems like a second good uh, successful meeting and you already have a date for the next one oh uh, yes uh again we decided the second tuesday of the month makes the most sense uh, and seems to be working well so far so yes the next meeting will be april 14th 2020 you can check out uh hambug.ca uh, where we will get, I think we're going to get a meetup.com thing set up and have be a bit more organized in the future. Yeah, and uh, kind of see how many people are intended to go. Yeah, good. Um, love that. See, it's nice. I mean, at the beginning, it's you're, you're not sure how many people will show up, if, if at all. But yeah, you're already at the second meeting and who knows how many people will become regulars and bring in new people. Yes, I think the... Uh, the biggest thing was realizing that each time we've stayed much later than we planned to. Well, that's a good thing. You know, we, we generally start the meetings at 6.30, which is about the earliest everybody can manage to get there. Last time, we didn't break up until like 10.30. And mostly because, you know, most people had an hour and a half, or not most, a number of people had like an hour and a half drive to get home. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, there were people that came from Buffalo and London and so on. Well, we didn't, we didn't break up until 11 o'clock last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's not like you ran out of uh, things to talk about it's it's always good what people you know bring in if you're like if you if two per people are talking they could run out of things but if there are like seven people there's always someone who has a new topic that other people might join in yeah uh and you know as we kind of just went around and talked a little bit about how we first got into computers and stuff it's there's just so many tangents we got hmm. talking about playing like scorched earth and tank wars and <laughs> uh our old bbs games 
I'm sure we could have a whole meeting just talking about the old BBS days. Yeah, and that, that lets people come in because they find people with similar interests and uh, you know they can ex expand on their own experiences. Or if you just go there and listen, you don't have to, to, to talk all the time. Uh, it's just, oh, just listen and see what other people are uh, interested in. Very, very cool. Uh, again, we will. If you have other meetings or uh, BSD user groups like that, and want to announce or want us to announce future uh, meeting dates, send them in early enough so that it's not oh in like two hours. Um, well, ooh, oops, you just listened to the episode. So send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we'll have those in an upcoming episode. And then there's a higher chance that people listen to it and have time to oh, it's just a drive away for an hour, and I could go there. Uh, Nicholas was just mentioning an IRC, you know, they had uh, their meeting recently, they had about 20 attendees, some very interesting talks about fiddling with drivers and working with Python and rambling about FreeBSD ports and so on. Um, but then, you know, it says with their meetings, usually it ends, it ends because people need to go home and sleep, not because we run out of things to talk about. <laughs> That's like a mini conference. <laughs> very, very compact. He also mentions that, um, They're having a FreeBSD Community Day, March 29th, as part of FOSS North uh, in Gothenburg, Sweden. So uh, if you're going to go to FOSS North, you might want to show up. I think it's early for the FreeBSD Community Day. Hopefully that will still happen. <clears throat> uh, yeah, so best wishes there. And yeah, looking forward to more interesting stories from the BSD user groups around the world. Mm-hmm. All right, it's time for the news roundup this week. And uh, as the title of this episode suggests, there is something coming together. And that is Free NAS and True NAS brand unification. And we picked this up from the iX Systems blog. And there is the story. Ah, you see a familiar uh, podcaster or familiar face on that. There's a video, but. Uh... <laughs> well, yes, I see the video, but I, I specifically see. This microphone. Uh, the, a specific microphone bought for a specific show. Yeah. <laughs> ah, great to see Chris. Yes, for a podcast. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, the announcement that FreeNAS and TrueNAS are unifying. Uh, so basically, FreeNAS will now be called TrueNAS Core uh, as they try to bring those code bases closer together. Uh, basically, previously, TrueNAS had been trailing quite a bit, uh, trying to be super stable. Um, but with FreeNAS gaining features like the virtual machine management and plugins and so on, the people were missing those features on TrueNAS and also, uh, you know, not having two different code bases made a lot uh, less work for them. So uh, with the 12.0 release coming later this year, uh, they're hoping to not only bring all those features improvements, but also to just unify those products and uh, be able to spend more time on new features and less time on keeping those existing things compatible or just maintaining two separate versions of the product. Yeah, that makes sense to uh, keep things focused on one thing, not uh, spreading yourself too thin across code base. Yeah, and you know, as part of that, they hope to be able to follow FreeBSD more closely, so they can get things like improved support for uh, Epic and Ryzen platforms, and uh, enhanced NUMA support for uh, many, many core CPUs, and so on. Plus, simplified documentation by avoiding, you know, 
oh, the TrueNAS is using older stuff, so the documentation for how to do this is different than on FreeNAS, whereas if you can keep those things closer, then they only have to write the documentation once. Hmm. Good. Uh, you know, plus this will also uh, be part of introducing OpenZFS 2.0, which is the new uh, unified ZFS code base with all the latest things from FreeBSD and Linux put together into one repo. Ah, yes, yeah, also a good uh, reason to do that. Ah, and yes, you can see the new logos, of course, and uh, how it will look, and, you know, a little bit of uh, marketing materials and screenshots down there, uh, the TrueNAS 12.0 preview. Oh, yeah, it looks very polished and uh, uh, nice and clean, so everything is in in direct view if you have like uh disks full or too much cpu load or whatever it might be you can pick it up right just looking at it less visual clutter there yeah so that looks interesting and i guess we'll see a bit more once they have um uh, a release up so they still have to go through the same alpha beta rc1 and so uh states that freenas has gone through and so there will be probably more announcements coming up in the future and we will covered those here as well uh, then as another item uh, we have openbsd versus prometheus and go uh, over at chris Simonman's blog who's becoming a regular in this show but uh, he's good at blogging hopefully he doesn't run out of things to say <laughs> <laughs> run out of show yeah so uh he's uh you know as we talked a little bit about uh, from his post before about um the way OpenBSD is trying to force things to go through its libc and how that provides a better interface uh, and how that can be a problem for languages like Go that want to do it directly. So he says, uh, we have a decent number of OpenBSD machines that do important things and that have sometimes experienced problems like running out of disk space. And so we use Prometheus-based metrics and monitoring system, uh, including the Prometheus host agent, which has enough support for OpenBSD to be able to report on critical metrics, including things like local disk space. So despite all of this, after some investigation, I've determined that it's not really sensible to even try to deploy the host agent on our OpenBSD machines this is due to a combination of factors that have their root in OpenBSD's lack of API stability. Uh, Prometheus and its host agents are written in Go. On OpenBSD, the host agent uh, uses Go's CGO feature to call native C libraries, which means that it can't readily be cross-compiled and must be built natively on an OpenBSD machine. Because of OpenBSD's lack of API stability, any given version of Go is officially supported only on a relatively narrow range of OpenBSD versions, generally the versions that were supported at that time of the release of that version of Go. And in my experience, often doesn't build or work on OpenBSD versions outside of that. Often Go binaries built with a particular version of Go will only work on a narrow range of OpenBSD versions, and that being the versions that it supports. Trying to use them on either too old or too new of an OpenBSD runs into either new things that aren't supported on the old version or old things that aren't supported on the new version. Uh, these things can be fundamental issues like types of runtime dynamic loading relocations that aren't supported on older OpenBSD versions. The current version of the Prometheus host agent generally won't build with versions of Go that are too old, nor will past versions, uh, although with the minimum Go version, it drops as you go back to older versions of the host agent. On OpenBSD, this means that a given version of the host agent effectively has a narrow range of OpenBSD versions that it will ever run on. It will probably not run on newer OpenBSD after a while, and it definitely won't run on older ones. And finally, historically, 
metrics have been renamed and shuffled around between versions of the host agent, uh, meaning that you kind of want to be running the same version on your your entire setup. Otherwise, you get you know weirdness because the metrics called one thing when it comes from an OpenBSD machine and a different thing when it comes from other machines. So that means that if you have a bunch of OpenBSD machines using various different versions of OpenBSD, as they do, at a minimum, you must run different versions of the host agent on different versions of OpenBSD, and they will expose some metrics using different names, which makes it hard to create a unified dashboard, alerts, and so on. When a new version of the host agent comes out, you'll only be able to upgrade some of your OpenBSD machines to use it, not all of them, and in practice, the range of OpenBSD versions where a particular version of the host agent works well seems to be even narrower than the range that it will run on. Uh, all of this assumes that you can even manage to build old versions of Go and old versions of the host agent on older OpenBSD machines. I was not entirely ses- successful at this, even for Go versions that were nominally supported on these OpenBSD versions. Running a whole collection of different versions of the Prometheus host agent on different machines and having to freeze magical golden binaries that we may or may not be able to rebuild later is not a very uh, attractive proposition. Even if we ignore our old OpenBSD machines and only deploy the latest host agent anymore, then we will have metrics drift as we have to stop running the host agent on those machines. Uh, For a relatively minor increase in observability on machines that we almost never have problems with in the first place, the whole thing just isn't worth it. So it's possible that the upcoming 1.0 of the host agent will promise to stop changing the current metric names, which would change the calculations here a bit. I suppose I should ask about that on the Prometheus mailing list. There's a follow-up post about this, and we will cover that next week. Yeah, it's good to mention these sorts of things because sometimes they're not uh, so well known in the upstream projects, and uh, yeah, could could be raising some uh, someone's head and say, "Ah, I should fix that or do something about it." Okay, yes, thanks for another uh, nice blog. And now the lucky number for you is three five eight four five four. This is not the lottery number or anything. This is just the revision in FreeBSD's repository removing GCC 4.1.2 from base. 4.2.1. Yeah, right. Um, that has been long time in the making. Very many years, many, many people worked on these things, but now it's uh, been done. So at Mass did the honor uh, seven days ago as the at the time of this recording. And removed GCC 4.2.1, the whole build infrastructure. And we have to commit here. Uh, so it reads, as described in Warner's email message to the FreeBSD Arch mailing list, we have reached GCC's 4.2.1's retirement date. At this time, all supported architectures, all of them, uh, either use Intree Clang or rely on external tool chains like the contemporary GCC version from ports. And uh, GCC 4.2.1 was released July 18th, 2007 and was imported into FreeBSD later that year in uh, another uh, revision. That's not too important here. GCC has served as well, but version 4.2.1 is obsolete and not used by default on any architecture in FreeBSD. It does not support modern C and does not support ARM64 or RISC-V. Thanks to everyone responsible for maintaining, updating, testing GCC in the FreeBSD base system over the years. So long and thanks for all the fish. So the reason why they they kept that uh, compiler so long is because it was the last one that was released under GPL2. 
and uh, the FreeBSD project doesn't like the GPL3 very much, so they couldn't import higher GCC versions. But they did occasionally ask people to backport any changes to GCC under the old license, so they could import those changes, but that wasn't sustainable overall. So everyone had to switch to another compiler, and that was Clang, but that took a while to catch all the uh, other tool chains and uh, little bits and architectures that they support. That's the reason why. Uh, yeah, so that's why that specific version of GCC is so popular, is it was the last one you could get that was uh, still under the less viral license. And yeah, I remember way back when from Dev Summits in like uh, Warsaw, Poland, that they were having this as an agenda item, and it kept moving on and moving on through the Dev Summits over the years. And I'm always like, wow, there's a lot of people working on that, and it's such a a long-term thing and now finally we're here and having that so this will uh, definitely be a uh, a milestone in the project and many new things will come from that having the unified compiler things and also they could remove a lot of old stuff that was supporting that infrastructure that's not uh, needed anymore so uh, that also is a little bit of a uh, thing to celebrate Woohoo! All right, time for the Beastie Bits this week. And the item we have is a new archive location for Dragonfly 4.x. Yeah, so basically they're changing around their mirror structure so that the uh, older versions of the ISOs and images and so on are under a directory literally called older. Okay, that's easy too. I think on FreeBSD we call it archive. Uh, and most mirrors don't carry that, but there's an ftp-archive.freebsd.org that does carry the old files if you need the old stuff to avoid, you know, storing all that old stuff on and all the mirrors for no reason. Yeah, good. So that people can do uh, more historic things and find it in that directory and the newer stuff is uh, directly in that. Yeah, like they say, all those images are at least two years old and this was mostly done to benefit the mirror site so that mirroring Dragonfly doesn't take up as much space for files that people probably aren't you know, very keen on downloading right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, not the latest and greatest. Okay, good to uh, have that mentioned. And next is a dead simple Git cheat sheet over at uh, the things.com and the cheat sheet itself is gitsheet.wtf. Ah, if that's not a memorable location. Mm -hmm. And here is everything you need to know about branching, locks, cleanups, tags, and stashes. So all the commands and uh, switches, everything. you And the nice thing is, it's not just a description. You can also copy that command line and just, you know, paste it in yours. And I don't recommend that. <laughs> well, uh, it's good to look up and remember how things are done uh, for a quick unless you're doing that every day and have it in your muscle memory already. Mm -hmm. But even the experts need to look up something now and then. Oh, yes. I've, I've referred to get cheat sheets like this a lot. I just don't recommend copying and pasting because as we've shown on the show before, uh, you can make it like you highlight this in your web browser and then when you paste it, it does something else. <laughs> yes, that is that uh, issue. We yeah, should be careful not to paste everything without thinking. But uh, yeah, for beginners, it's probably easier to copy it around this way good so check it out the git cheat cheat and uh, the last item we have in the beastie bits is xorg 1.20.7 on hardened bsd comes with ie slash rel row plus bind now plus oh cfi and safe stack protections ah that's from the sean webb uh, and of hardened bsd 
And uh, he writes in his tweet that due to our ports hardening framework, CFI and SafeStack are still automatically applied in the hardened BSD ports tree. And as said, they are verifying that uh, XORG 1.20.7 works with uh, PI, RELROW, plus BIND, underscore now, CFI and SafeStack. All right, let's go into feedback and questions. The most anticipated uh, part of this or any any other episode uh, we hear occasionally. So let's go into it. Uh, the first one is uh, Nicholas, who uh, we interviewed a couple months ago already. Oh, wow. Uh, he's the graphics man on uh, the FreeBSD team. He leads that, the graphics team. Uh, he's not alone, luckily, but um, yeah, he's the face probably of the whole uh, operation. And it's... Uh, good work he's doing and his team as well so he writes in as a reply to the lenovo uh, lenovo e595 user from episode 340 because nicholas is listening to our old episodes so thanks for that and he could follow up on this with this message hi i listened to the latest episode 340 the other day and there was a person having questions about running freebsd on a lenovo e595 laptop with an amd ryzen 5 cpu and vega 8 gpu I'll try to answer some of the questions about that. See, that's good. Why should we answer things if other people could do it better than we? So, first off, the email that is referred to in the question is regarding an issue where a change in current broke uh, at compile time the DRM graphics drivers. This has long been fixed in the port. Okay, so we can put a check mark on that. Uh, regarding the actual issue, it's very hard to know what's going on without logs, specifically uh, dmessage from when the driver is loaded in boot modules uh, amdgp yeah, amdgp.ko uh, as well as the xorg0.log is important from starting the actual X server. The submitter mentions that the trouble most likely is loading the driver that is causing the issues, uh, quoting, having a really hard time to make AMD GPU driver to be recognized in FreeBSD. Okay, unquote. Uh, I can't remember on top of my head, but it might be that this GPU is only supported by DRM Devel KMOD, in which case the only way to have it running is to use FreeBSD 13 current at the moment. And in any case, it's probably easiest if this person asks for help on the x11 at freebsd.org mailing list. So that's x11 at freebsd.org, uh, including the hardware information, a problem description, the D message, and the logs uh, mentioned earlier. And I guess then they have an easier time figuring out the issue and giving you test patches or things to to try out and then get feedback more directly from the developers. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks for that feedback, Niklas. And uh, hopefully the issue will be resolved this way to the benefit of pretty much everyone using that driver and that particular version. Lyubomir writes about Galley and ZFS in this next item. And uh, the message goes like this. Dear Alan, Benedict, and JT, uh, thanks for the nice podcasts. I find a lot of interesting things on BSDNow.tv. I have some questions for you. Okay, let's hear it. I have a laptop with one SSD. I have installed FreeBSD 12.1 with ZFS and Gally. These days, I decided to move the installation to a bigger SSD. My first thought was to copy the data with DD, but I have heard that encrypted disks do not do well with DD. I tried cloning the disk with a disk duplicator, an Oracle external uh, SATA to USB docking station, but with no success. On reboot, I get uh, the, the dreaded GPT ZFS boot, no ZFS pools located, can't boot. Uh. You search the net uh, for any of the uh, solution to this, but all proposed uh, couldn't find. 
uh, to repair with GPAR, to enable GALI partition with GALI configured dash G, etc. Uh, did all not help? Do you have any idea how to quickly clone an SSD with ZFS and GALI? There's a couple different ways. Um, so the main thing with booting is the problem is going to be the GALI metadata isn't going to be at the end of the disk where it normally is, uh, or at the end of the partition because it's now bigger. So actually, if you clone the disk and it's the normal setup where the galley is inside the gpt partition in that case it should still work isn't there an option to run a backup of the bootloader bits somewhere and then reload them yeah um there is an option to back up the key sector as well but in this case it's just that the key sector is still there it's just not at the end of the drive but galley encrypt the whole drive when the default setup with the installer, we Gelly encrypt just the one partition. So now if the disk is bigger, that partition isn't going to have grown yet unless you manually resized it yourself. And so it shouldn't cause a problem here. Of course, the best way to do this probably is to set up the new disk with Gelly and then either attach it to the existing ZFS pool as a mirror and have it replicate all the data and then you can detach the old disk if you don't want to use it anymore and now you'll have your pool set up and mirrored or create a new pool on the new disk instead of send everything from the first disk to the second disk the advantage of both of those over something like dd is you don't have to copy every block of the file system you only copy the actual data that's there so if the disk is only a third full you only copy a third of the disk instead of all of the disk but in general the dd probably should have worked It'd be interesting to see the output of Gpart Show and uh, Gelly Dump and a couple other things like that to know what was going on there. Hmm, yeah. But yeah, DD or the disk duplicator probably should work unless you did a manual setup of some kind where you have Gelly on the whole disk and then ZFS on top of that without the partitioning. Then the fact, I think you'll have to use Gelly resize and have to know what the old size was to have it be able to find the Gelly metadata sector and copy that to the new end of the drive. Mm. So it's in the right place. Uh, but if the Gelly is inside a partition, until you resize that partition, it'll still work. And so you would be able to just uh, use Gpart to resize the partition and then Gelly resize to increase the size of the Gelly encrypted partition and then be able to have ZFS grow and use that extra space. And it should just work. But, you know, if it's a new disk, it's a great time to get a new master key for Gelly anyway. So replicating the data using ZFS send or by attaching the second disk as uh, a mirror using zpool attach and then detach the smaller disk if you don't want to actually have a mirror in the long run uh, might be the better solution. Okay, which brings us to a second part of his question. I tried ZFS send, ZFS receive to hold data from the source SSD to another machine or have enough storage with ZFS send and ZFS receive. Uh, on the receive side, I wanted to have the data in certain data sets like zero temp slash from SSD. But I had a problem. On the sending side, the pool is named ZRoot. And on the receiving side, it is the same. On the receiving side, it asked to replace the existing data sets. Where did I go wrong? Uh, so when you run zpool receive tell it where to put the stuff. So if you do zpool receive zroot temp from underscore SSD, it's asking if you want to replace the from underscore SSD directory. Likely what you want to do there is just run zpool or ZFS receive zroot slash temp slash from underscore SSD slash zroot. And then 
it will copy everything over. Uh, when you're doing that, there's a flag to ZFS receive to not mount the data sets as you receive them. You might want to do that because depending how you're replicating it, it might replicate the fact that, you know, Z root slash var uh, on the pool that's coming over is set to be slash var. So you don't want the backups to end up mounting over your live file systems. <laughs> yeah, no, better not. <laughs> uh, because A, you don't want to change what's in the backup and B, having everything in your slash var disappear and be replaced with the stuff on the other machine will be very confusing at first. But yes, uh, in this case, when it's asking about the existing, it's asking about what you typed into ZFS receive, the path name you put in there, it's asking if you want to replace that. You can avoid this by adding slash something that doesn't exist yet, and then it will just create that as it goes. But you might want to add that, I think, dash U flag to make it not mount as it receives it so that you have a chance to ZFS set the mount points to something safe or just set them all to legacy or legacy or none either way. Uh, and then they won't get mounted automatically, but you'll still be able to mount them manually if you need to. And the third part of his question and the last is one proposal for the podcast. Can you please invite more BSD developers to tell their story how they started with BSD and possibly to give advice how to start coding with BSD, different coding languages, for example. I hope it will influence younger people to start using and contribute to BSDs. Uh, generally, that's a good idea, comma, but uh, it's, I hate to say that, but the problem is we're having a couple of uh, double episodes pre-recorded and that needs scheduling. And having an interview there makes it a bit more difficult. In general, we like the interviews. They're always great and uh, enhance the show in different ways. Let's put it this way. Uh, if anyone is volunteering to be interviewed, please contact us. Oh, yeah. Uh, at feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll work something out. Yeah, we'll, we'll make the schedule uh, adjust to that. And so uh, we're not doing doubles all the time, but... Uh, with apparently upcoming tech conferences until they get canceled. <laughs> yes, with our upcoming travel schedule possibly being canceled, it might be easier to get some interviews recorded. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely. We also want to hear these stories because uh, we have our own stories, but they're totally different, as Alan mentioned, from the user group. Everyone has a different entry, and it's just so interesting how people got to BSD in the first place. So, uh, And then becoming developers is just icing on the cake. You know, asking people how they first got into BSD is the first question in most all of the interviews we've ever done for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're always the most interesting stories to me as well. It's a great conversation starter at conferences even. Yeah, If you don't know anyone, like, how did you get into BSD? It was great. Um, in Norway, I think it was Tom Jones suggested the idea as the bunch of us sitting around at the table. Uh, most of us didn't know more than one or two of the people at the table. Uh, and so we had to all go around and, and talk. And it was uh, very enlightening to get. We had quite the, the range of people from people that had, you know, this was like their first BSD event and they had only just played with BSD a little bit or whatever uh, through people that have worked uh, using BSD for years to uh, even Satwa-san happened to be at the table. So, you know, has been working on FreeBSDs basically the whole time there was a FreeBSD. Uh, and that's, you know, it was very interesting to see the, the diversity of experience there. And sometimes you hear things from people you've known for years from conferences, and then still there's something new you didn't know about them. Yes, I think one of my favorite ones still is uh, that Dag Erling, who organized EuroBSDCon in Norway, uh, got into BSD because he wanted a better operating system than DOS to build demo scene executables on. And it's like, wow, I remember those. 
in the VBS days. It's like <laughs> somebody made this executable and it's only this big and it plays this like five minute movie uh, of great graphics and stuff. So yeah, uh, we'll try that. Um, definitely get in contact with us and yeah, let's see what uh, future interviews we're going to get. Uh, so thank you, Lubomir. And uh, Peter is the uh, third in the bunch of questions this week. Uh, Peter writes in about scaling FreeBSD jails. And his message is short, but nevertheless important. Uh, writing, hi there. Another question for ye. I particularly hear, or regularly hear, you speak highly of jails, and I also use them in a basic way for simple tasks at home. Is there a robust way to scale jails similar to how Linux containers do without the need for some homemade bash script? Is Ansible the best route to take? Uh, so I guess it depends what you mean. In this case, if you're just managing a lot of jails, probably something like Ansible's the right thing. You know, we use Puppet to do it uh, at Scale Engine, where we have usually between three and 10 jails on each machine. It can be a, a personal choice whether you actually end up wanting to run, you know, Salt or Puppet or Ansible inside each jail or once on the host and then be able to administer the jails from without. Uh, we mostly go running Puppet inside the jail and treat each of them as if it was a different machine, basically lightweight virtual machines for us. And it's worked out quite well. Some of the jails are we have basically this exactly identical jail on 100 different machines, uh, and they're meant to be, other than the host name, there's no way to tell them apart. And then some other ones, it's like, you know, this jail's more specialized, it's the only one of its kind, or whatever. Uh, well, with Ansible, it's mostly a, a management. It's not built directly for jails or for containers even. It's just making many of the standard tasks, if you write a playbook, easier and you just run this and fire in forget manner. But you have to write it first and then know, you know, how do you want to scale? Do you uh, want to make it bigger in certain ways or like 20%, 30%? There are other frameworks out there that are definitely made and built for exactly that purpose. That's uh, not what Ansible is built for or what Ansible could do in that way. Right. There's, I think HashiCorp has one, it's called a cluster scheduler or whatever, and it's about, you know, distributing the workload across. Yeah, you know, I have this many machines and I need to run this many jails, figure out which machines to run which ones on and so on, uh, and spinning them up and down as you need. To, if, if you mean scaling in that more elastic sense, then something like that might make more sense. The way I was reading this, I was assuming you mostly meant how do I scale managing them so that it, it doesn't seem like I'm managing hundreds of machines just because I have, you know, 10 machines that each have 10 jails on them. Um, if someone out there that's li that are listening uh, knows of a framework that has escaped us thus far, uh, definitely send this in. We will be happy to mention it in the show. Uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is your address for that. Your email will go there and... Then in a future episode, we will mention that even if there's a blog post or if it's just a feedback and question thing that uh, we'll be happy to mention so that other people can use that as well. Okay, thanks for this question, Peter. And that pretty much wraps up this episode for this week. Uh, hopefully you stay safe and uh, well healthy. That's probably what you can wish every, every person nowadays. And uh, yeah, we'll be happy to have you with us next week. 